1: Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: Really, really excited to have you guys on. So Dr. Obadiah and Dr. Gutenberg, really exciting, nicest people I know too, but McGovern Institute fellows at MIT. We won't go through total background because it would just take the whole podcast, but researchers at MIT They are principal investigators there. Omar studied at Harvard Medical School, Harvard-MIT Health Sciences and Technology, MD-PhD, completed doctoral work in Feng Zhang's lab, who we've talked about many times on the podcast, the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, a lot of research on CRISPR enzymes, which are also one of our favorite topics to talk about on this podcast. We love genome editing, so that comes up a lot as well. It was also recognized in 2018 in Forbes 30 Under 30 in Science and Healthcare and Business Insider 30 Under 30. So a lot to talk about there. And then very quickly, Dr. Gutenberg earned his bachelor's degree in mathematics and biological engineering at MIT, PhD in systems biology from Harvard, And conducted research also with Feng Zhang at the McGovern Institute and Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, and focused on molecular technologies for targeting and sensing disease states, crossing disciplines by utilizing novel computational techniques, microbiology, biochemistry, molecular biology, um, for new CRISPR tools, which are some of our favorites, including Cas twelve and Cas thirteen, which we've talked about before, and I'm sure we'll get into it more now too. And Dr. Grudenberg was also in the 30 under 30, and Business Insiders, 30 and under. So sorry, that was a mouthful, but so many amazing accomplishments. So those were just a few of them, but I don't want to make you guys blush anymore, but just wanted to get some of those out there. But thanks for for coming on.
0: Yeah, no, thanks for having us on. No, I love the opportunity to talk.
2: Cool. So I guess we can start in so many different places, but maybe my introduction just focused on some of the, you know, huge accolades. But maybe do you guys just want to talk for a second just about your background and and how you got to where you are today?
0: Yeah, no. Omar, why don't you start? Uh, sure. So,
3: yeah, I mean, Jonathan and I have been working together now for a number of years. Um, we actually first met in <laughs> college at MIT, where we did a biodesign uh, course together, and I guess became science soulmates after that course and sort of crossed paths again in different labs. You know, we were crossed paths again a couple of years later in Ed Boyan's lab, and then both landed in Feng Zheng's lab as PhD students. And I would say our science sort of romance and rekindle again for maybe another year in the lab when we started working really close together after a year of sort of starting there and you know our, our early sort of collaboration was on a lot of the new CRISPR stuff. So, you know, Cas9 was just picking up around that time. And we asked a really interesting question, which is, is Cas9 really the only thing out there? You know, in other spaces in molecular biology, for example, you know, molecular cloning, where you might want to copy a gene uh, for the purpose of, you know, doing gene therapy or making vectors that can express genes. And There are thousands of different restriction enzymes. And so we were wondering, you know, is Cas9 just the first example that was found for sort of CRISPR systems? And so we embarked on a journey of six or seven years of discovering all sorts of new CRISPR systems, you know, Cas12, Cas13, things that target RNA instead of DNA for reversible gene therapies, stuff that was useful for CRISPR diagnostics, not just gene therapy. You know, we started a number of companies in both the CRISPR diagnostics space as well as the gene therapy space, some with fung as well. And, uh, you know, a few years ago, we actually started our lab together at MIT to sort of keep churning out new molecular tools for gene editing and cell engineering. And we're happy to chat more about uh, where that's going. So I'll pass it back to Jonathan to clarify any holes in the
0: story. <laughs> no, that's, that's a pretty good, uh, I'd say, summary. I mean, I think just to take it from a different tack, I think both of us, before we started working together, we were very interested in tool development because it's an old trope, but scientific research is, you know, driven by tools. And I remember when I was, you know, I loved biology when I was a kid and got to work in some labs and that was fun. But I think often you hit this kind of philosophical question, which is, what do you work on? And one nice thing about tools is that working on methods, I mean, CRISPR obviously is probably the prime example right now in people's heads, but methods have been in biology as long as biology has been around, is that if you develop something that really is useful, it lifts everybody. So, it, anyone can take that and use that. And that's a nice thing about molecular tools in general, because you know, CRISPR, the, you know, the Cas9 enzyme in the ribonucleoprotein complex, it's incredibly complex. I don't think I could build that myself, but it's really easy because you just put that DNA into a bacteria or a human cell or whatever, and it does all the work for you. So it means that when you work on these methods and tools, that is incredibly satisfying to be able to make something that can help everybody. And so Omar and I were, I think, inspired that Uh, before we started working in fungs lab when we were in ed's lab we were working on ways to think about how to use you know molecular tools to sequence proteins and a lot of crazy ideas but i think that we were both drawn to the concept that you could take something from nature or engineer something de novo or combine those and really use that to have an amazing benefit in basic biology in therapeutics and diagnostics and that's i think the core of really what we are still inspired to do. And Omar mentioned that we started out in kind of genome engineering, but it's been really amazing to see how kind of the different fields have, of, you know, really cutting edge science have been evolving, even while we've been in, you know, Boston. And I I was co-advised by Aviv Regev, and so I had a lot of experience exposure to this, you know, idea of kind of single cell and cellular profiling, this idea that we can actually look at heterogeneity in disease in the body at the single cell level. And now it's becoming clear that these two fields of genome editing and single cell analysis are really coming this under this incredible large umbrella of how do we profile cells and then engineer cells. And I think that's really how we view our you know kind of overall lab goal, which is how do we develop tools to make the next era of cellular engineering really possible. So we can control cells as medicines and as diagnostics to really have entirely new ways to attack questions of biology and questions of health.
2: Yeah, I think that's really good context. It's really helpful. And also, I want to find my science soulmate. So, (laughs) you know, hopefully that happens soon. But it's interesting you mentioned sequencing proteins and how crazy it was. And the cool thing is, is that you guys are so forward thinking, you know, that was crazy at the time and now is becoming, you know, a little bit less crazy. So there's so many different places that we can start and and go through here. But, you know, one of the things that would be interesting to talk about is, as you mentioned, diagnostics. So we do a lot of these podcasts. We talk a lot about DNA editing. So I'd love to get into RNA editing, which you guys are obviously at the forefront. But diagnostics is something we don't talk about as much as well. So maybe we can just go into a little bit about diagnostics. Obviously, You know, we can touch on Sherlock, you know, the creation of of detecting human diseases is is really interesting and hunting for, you know, these CRISPR tools that can hopefully treat disease and maybe even those related to aging. So maybe you guys can touch on sort of the idea of, of creating new diagnostic tools using CRISPR.
3: It's an interesting concept, right? Because a lot of the excitement was
2: around CRISPR for gene therapy and gene editing. And
3: what's amazing is the precise ability of these enzymes to precisely find their target site in the genome should intuitively make sense that, you know, they'd be really good at finding, you know, sequences that are, you know, not endogenous to the human genome if they have this search function. And so I think it was kind of like this concept of like, well, instead of like trying to find a sequence in the human genome and cut it, let's find something else, like a virus that shouldn't be there. And then instead of cutting it, like report on the presence of that. And so, you know, we stumbled just coincidentally on some enzymes that were more attuned for being able to do diagnostics rather than editing just because of their natural sort of biochemical functions and we realized this would be the perfect system to showcase these diagnostic potentials and it, I think, you know, what's really exciting is beyond whether, you know, it's CRISPR or some other chemistry, you know, the concept of like what's the smart home of, you know, the next decade or two decades, right? And you know, we're starting to get all these, you know, things in our house, you know, the internet of things, like objects that can listen all the time and tell you the weather when you wake up in the morning or turn your lights to like a million different colors. And, you know, that's really cool. But wouldn't it also be cool to have like in, you know, an automated sort of clinic in your home as well that could, you know, if you feel sick in the middle of the night, you could just swab yourself and it tells you, oh, you have like a cold or, oh man, it's pneumonia, go to the hospital. It would be, you know, cool then if that result could then, you know, be used for like telehealth. So you don't even have to go anywhere, but you just hop on the phone and someone tells you what to do. And so I think you know, we're heading in that direction as molecular biology becomes simpler and simpler and biology itself becomes more and more programmable. I think we're starting to see this with like Moderna, right? Being able to make a vaccine in less than a year and talking about programming ourselves for new, you know, COVID updates and, you know, other bugs, even like, you know, flu, you know, we're starting to see this acceleration in other spaces. And I think the concept of bringing this type of uh, really technical molecular biology into every person's home to, you know, give you complete information about yourself and your health and when things maybe go wrong would be, really exciting and it doesn't exist yet. And so <laughs> that's kind of the concept behind CRISPR diagnostics.
2: Cool. Jonathan, um, anything you want to, yeah, jump in. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So I guess to take a different tack on CRISPR diagnostics, just kind of as a background for how it works, you know, that when these enzymes, a su- subclass of these enzymes, they identify sequences, um, they become activated. And then they cut up other things in the test tube and we can use that as a diagnostic because we can detect that cutting activity. And I want to actually use this for a, a different teaching, which is that you never know what you'll find. So when we first found this property of kind of activation of cutting things up, we called it collateral cleavage. We found it on the enzyme Cas13. And we had no idea that this enzyme had this property. It's actually, we always... Had assumed up to the point that we did the experiments that we assumed it worked exactly like Cas9, which is that Cas9, one metaphor is, you know, it's this programmable pair of scissors where you target it somewhere and it cuts right there. And we thought that would work the same way. But the crazy thing is, essentially structurally, the part that identifies in Cas13 and the scissors are in different places. So you identify and you activate somewhere else. And we couldn't have known that beforehand. So I think all those CRISPR diagnostic applications that Omar outlined, these kind of really amazing blue sky opportunities, we had no idea that these enzymes had this until we just characterized them and we found it by happenstance. So it really speaks to the fact that we need to continue to just explore natural diversity, kind of interesting mechanisms, and that we can probably end up turning a lot of these things unexpectedly into tools just by following our curiosity. So that's my CRISPR diagnostics spiel.
2: That was a really good breakdown of exactly how it works because I think that's definitely been a challenge for some people to understand. I think it'd be cool if you could just to talk about fluorescence and how it works when there's actually something that's detected.
0: Yeah, so basically, what is we have this enzyme and it's going around searching for this sequence and it finds the sequence that we want it to find. Let's say the SARS-CoV-2 genome, right? It becomes activated. And then it starts cutting things in the solution, pieces of RNA in the solution. So what we do is we have a different molecule that we spike in, and it consists of a piece of RNA. And it's a little bit like a dumbbell, but it's an uneven dumbbell, it's not symmetric. So on one end is a fluorophore, it glows, and we can detect that. But on the other end is something called a quencher. And that's a molecule that actually blocks the fluorescence of that fluorophore, it quenches it. (laughs) So pretty apt name. And this means that when those two pieces are together on that dumbbell, it's dark. You can't detect it. Now, when that Cas13 that's become activated, and Cas12 also has this property of DNA, but yeah, this is a bit of an aside, it cuts that RNA and separates and breaks that dumbbell. And those two pieces, the fluorophore and the quencher, are then separated. And that actually means that the quencher can no longer quench the fluorophore and the fluorophore glows. And then we can detect that by normal fluorescence, like a easy LED in a detector and in a very portable way. And it means that we can actually use this to make a glowing signal that can even, in some cases, people have used CRISPR diagnostics to see things by eye, which is very cool. We can also, using a bit of a different hack, make it so we have two molecules that we have together and then that cutting separates them. And we can actually detect it on what's called a lateral flow strip, which is one common thing. version of those is a pregnancy test. So it's actually like a pregnancy test format that you can use for things like you know COVID. Uh, we've actually demonstrated a like a, that lateral flow strip readout for COVID, which means that you actually don't need any instrumentation for readout at all. Uh, it's very easy to use. So it's a very modular technology and it means that people have used this for actually a lot of different flexible things like Jim Collins, who we've collaborated with a, a ton uh, and he was early on one of the co-authors and his lab was integral in starting the Sherlock work, made it so it's actually electronics. So you can gate electronics using this CRISPR detection. And he had a recent paper where they actually integrated this technology into a face mask. So you can use CRISPR diagnostics and CRISPR detection in a wearable, and then that could trigger something like an electronic signal or a persistent sensor. So it's very flexible and very useful in a lot of different circumstances. And that's one reason I think why CRISPR diagnostics is having such an impact.
2: That makes a lot of sense. And obviously, we've seen that with COVID, it's been an interesting potential use case. Omar, I just want to throw it back to you if there's anything you want to add on that.
3: I think what would be really cool, I mean, you know, we've obviously spent many years optimizing the chemistry and how to, you know, make these things as portable as possible. But I think really the next step is more on the device side. And I think, you know, it's interesting when biology and and the chemistry gets to a certain point, it really becomes more about like, how do you interface these things with people and consumers? And so we've been spending a lot of time looking at, you know, how to build things like that, like an Apple HomePod, for example, that could, you know, house the whole system. And, you know, you basically just swab yourself and put it in and it's automated and can run in, you know, sort of any setting. And I think when we think about more of like, how does this work for consumers? I think the interesting things are, you know, COVID is one thing, but like, you know, respiratory panels, like things that, you know, that tell you whether you should go to, the hospital or not, like, you know, flu versus, you know, something more uh, more serious like pneumonia or something that's just the regular cold or, you know, for kids, RSV versus CMV versus other, you know, uh, different respiratory viruses. So, you know, thinking through like the menu and like what panels sort of make most sense, probably most likely infectious disease space, I think is what's what will be most interesting. But obviously, we interface with clinicians and advisors to really work through these things. But those are our current thoughts. Yeah.
2: I think the device side is super interesting. How far away do you think we are from actually having that? Because, you know, there are devices like the Aura Ring or others where you can look at, you know, sometimes some symptoms that are early and it can help with detection. I think there's been some studies on the Aura Ring specifically that have shown, you know, that there's been some sort of early symptoms of COVID. So, They've been able to use that. But just curious how far away you think we are from like actually having these type of devices at home where we can use them as diagnostics.
0: Yeah, I think that, well, probably sooner than might anticipate. We're you know, actively working to translate some of these uh, technologies and chemistries into basically a box that you can have a different menu of tests. So that's currently undergoing a lot of testing optimization, but we're hoping that it'll be out quite soon. So it's something that I think consumers will be able to access sooner rather than later, probably hopefully within the next you know year or two.
2: That's awesome. At the beginning of at the beginning of COVID, we looked at how much employers would save if employees didn't show up when they had any signs or symptoms of being sick. And we found I think I can't remember the number offhand, but it was quite substantial. And so if you just invest in these technologies and it's really possible to, you know, potentially actually save money in the long run, because then the sort of infection chain ends and you're able to alert when you wouldn't go to work. And obviously, your diagnosis can be used for so many different reasons. But having it at home is just, you know, beneficial in so many ways. And I guess employees or employer saving money is not the first that comes to mind for you guys, probably. But, you know, it, it is a substantial amount of money. So it's probably an interesting avenue to think about, too. But maybe now we can switch to RNA because I think even for me, I didn't realize how impactful RNA is. You know in gene editing when you think about you know traditional gene editing or dna editing firstly we obviously need the guide rna so that makes it pretty central but also there's you know a few parallels to rna interference with dna editing and then also dr jennifer doudna is a biochemist that specializes in rna And Emmanuel Charpentier, who we know both of them won, you know, the Nobel Prize for CRISPR, was really fascinated with tracer RNA. So anyway, all this to say that RNA is obviously very crucial to the gene editing story. So would love to kind of start talking about RNA. And obviously, you two have become very influential in (laughs) RNA, you know, given the Cas7, Cas11. I think that was only a couple weeks ago that the paper came out. So first of all, congratulations, really exciting stuff. And I'd be curious to know, so in the lab, you're trying to figure this out. What was kind of like the eureka moment where you're like, oh my God, we just did this. Yeah, I mean,
0: there's a couple of them. But I think that with these systems, when you're kind of working on these CRISPR systems, it's always nice to show the first activity, which really like showing we put this into a system and it worked. So for us, I feel like, or at least for me, I think Omar probably has a, you know, of course, a different perspective. But the Eureka moment is when you put this into a bacteria, and then you try to put in a virus against that bacteria with an RNA genome, and you show that it cuts that virus's genome and it protects. And then you're, you know, wow, this works. Maybe it doesn't work in mammalian cells. That might be another Eureka moment. Actually, when we got it to work in mammalian cells, but it's an enzyme that actually does this programmed cutting. And I think that's always cool to see that it's an actual functional piece of protein that's doing what you want. At least that's, you know, when I thought, it. I don't know if Omar, maybe you get a different Eureka moment.
3: This most recent enzyme cas eleven, you know, as for people who don't know, you know, there's most people think of CRISPR as DNA targeting, and we've you know spent a lot of time also finding sort of RNA targeting systems. And I don't know if everyone attending here is a biologist, so I want to you know explain that in a little bit more detail. But you know, DNA of course is sort of this permanent genetic code, right? That that we all have that you know tell cells how to differentiate, and form tissues, and run all our processes. And RNA are pieces. Of the genome that are expressed that actually can turn into proteins and RNA is much more transient, right? It can turn over in a matter of days. It's not permanent. So when you edit your DNA, you make permanent gene edits, and that's great for you know one and done sort of gene therapies. But if you edit RNA, it can be actually be reversible and turn over. And so you know we had a lot of excitement. In developing RNA-targeting CRISPR systems for the purpose of being able to do sort of reversible gene therapies, think of it as like a pill. And when you take that pill, you can edit a base in your genome that treats a disease, and you can always stop taking that pill, and that can get around any potential side effects of permanent gene editing or potential off-targets or whatever. And so, you know, I think early on in the RNA-targeting world, we had our first eureka moment. This must have been like 2016, 2015. We were trying really hard to find a CRISPR enzyme that would actually cut RNA, and you know, we probably screened through dozens dozens and dozens of different proteins from all sorts of random bacteria. And eventually, I think a late night, like in the radiation room where we like image our gels, we actually were able to finally see a smear on the gel that indicated the RNA was being cut. It was actually really weird at the time because we were looking for precise bands that indicate precise cutting. And instead, we were getting a smear because the RNA was being degraded. We found out later that these RNA targeting systems, these Cas13s actually don't make precise cuts. They actually recognize a target and then cut. RNA to degradation which is ma- made sense of that discovery later but it you know I think goes to show that not all discoveries at first really make sense and it can take a whole nother year just to sort through all the data and put it all together and you know, what's interesting is this cas 11 paper we published like a month ago was the culmination of all that work because we finally found the CRISPR enzyme system that makes a precise cut rather than having this sort of uh, collateral activity that blows up the cell, which is why we sort of uh, show in the paper that makes for more safer RNA targeting therapies. Um, As an example... If you want to use these systems to target COVID, because COVID's an RNA virus, you can't use Cas9 to target it, because Cas9 doesn't cut RNA. Cas11 would be really great, because you could precisely design it to cut the virus when it gets into your cells, and you could clear the virus better as a therapeutic option. So these are the types of things these tools and technologies can be useful for.
2: Right. That's actually really helpful in good context. I know everyone is not a biologist. So really appreciate the extra uh, explanation, because I'm sure that helped a lot of people. Um, So, you know, when I think about RNA editing, I love the idea that it's transient in the sense that it's reversible because, you know, as we know and and we've seen in trials, you know, sometimes we get news that that is disconcerting a little bit with off-target edits. Like, you know, very recently with Allogene, they had a patient with their edited CAR-T who had a chromosomal abnormality. You know, we await further data, but I think you know hearing that is is nerve wracking, and and we want to ensure that there are no off target edits. And you know, I, I think gene editing will get better and better with with different iterations. But it is interesting to have an option to do RNA editing, which is transient. But the nature of it being transient is also you know difficult because typically that would mean that you need to redose. So, you know, maybe help me understand this. So with RNA, you know, I think about the half-life and and the idea that, you know, we're constantly getting some new RNA. And so I wonder, you know, does the RNA need to kind of linger around and be present in the body for, you know, the therapy to be continuous? Um, And then also I'm curious about sort of your ideas versus, you know, a catalytic versus more of a stoichiometric therapeutic. Because I imagine that, you know, RNA would be more sort of stoichiometric. So just curious if there are any thoughts there and, and sort of like advantages or disadvantages. Yeah, I,
0: explaining catalytic versus stoichiometric. No, I mean, that, that's actually a really good point. But to kind of take it back to RNA versus DNA. So CRISPR is really amazing because it gives us the capacity to program these enzymes to go to anywhere in the genome and edit it based on rules that we understand base pairing, you know, A's and T's, C's and G's. With RNA, it's A's and U's, but same idea. But, you know, the idea that we are only currently using that to target mostly genetic diseases is because I think that there's a lot of cases where you don't want this to be permanent, right? This programmability. And we're not just talking about changing the letters. We're also talking about reducing RNAs and upregulating RNAs. But the idea that you can actually now do this means that you can start to hit places in the regulation of the cell that actually allow you to have a lot of potentially very unique control over cell state. And here's a a small vignette about that. You don't necessarily have to knock something down and keep knocking it down to have an effect. There's the other school of thought, which is that you can knock something down to create temporarily, to create a permanent effect. And that effect could be turning one cell type into another. So there's a lot of interesting work on trans-differentiation where you can knock down a certain transcript in one that's commonly used is PTBP1 to actually change the identity of a cell from a non-neuronal cell to a neuronal cell. And this, you only have to transiently knock it down, but it's actually a permanent change. And people have done this actually with RNA targeting CRISPR enzymes. There's a small footnote to that, which is now people are looking into the biology of that, and there was recently a paper that raised a lot of questions about that transdifferentiation work. But the concept of being able to cause a permanent change in a cell's identity to turn it from one cell type to another, or in a different case, to knock down a transcript to cause proliferation of a cell to regenerate your liver, could be a very unique approach using RNA modulation to create a permanent change. There's also instances where you don't want something to be permanent at all. So people have used modulation of RNA via CRISPR to knock down certain potassium channels and to actually regulate and uh, reduce pain. So to use it as an analgesic to actually be able to eliminate pain. And people are using different CRISPR tools for this. But this, obviously, you wouldn't want to be permanent and you would want to be able to redose, but it would be a non-addictive pain medicine. So being able to think about those potential cases, I think, shows a lot of the utility. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, you could deliver this, an RNA-targeting enzyme and have it permanently expressed and actually be able to knock something down for a long term, and you could use that to repress the levels for a long period. This would be as an alternative to RNAi, where you may not want to be able to use the natural RNAi machinery for safety reasons, which have been put into question. So. Really, RNA targeting CRISPR approaches encompass both permanent and temporary approaches to creating changes in cells, causing cells to do different things, targeting genetic diseases. And that's why I think they're so exciting because there's just so many things you can do with them as a platform.
2: That's awesome because you touched on a few things. Wait, I want to throw it back to Omar. I know you said you want to give Jonathan the hard ones, but if you, anything you want to add for the, on that one? Yeah, well, <laughs> I,
3: maybe I'll just tackle the first question you had, which is, you know, what is RNA editing good for? And I think, you know, I, I mentioned one of them, which is targeting viruses, right? Because you don't need to permanently express this technology to knock down the virus, right? You just need to deliver it, probably deliver it as mRNA and synthetic guides much like our vaccines are delivered Mm -hmm. and you know, you let it, you know, incubate in the cells for a few days or maybe you need to redose a bit until the virus load goes down. So, I think infectious disease is a really good application for these types of systems. And the others are like what Jonathan was saying, which is knocking a cell into a new state. There are a lot of examples where you can knock something down to convert and trans-differentiate cells, for example. Maybe you want to make neurons in the brain and you can use RNA knockdown for that. You don't need to permanently express it. Maybe you want to regenerate cells post-liver or heart attack. Sorry, post-liver injury or a heart attack. And RNA knockdown can do that too. So I think there actually are a lot of short-term modulation um, opportunities that are not being met uh, with current technologies. And I think programmable RNA CRISPR technologies offer a really cool solution to that. And so hopefully in the future, we'll we'll have that.
2: Yeah, that certainly would have been helpful (laughs) a year and a half ago. So, (laughs) so, you know, get working on it guys. (laughs) (laughs) But no, you guys touched on a few really great points. So one was sort of this differentiation between other modalities like antisense oligonucleotides and RNA interference, and the other one that I think you guys touched on that you know would love to talk a little bit more about is the safety. So you know, one thing that's that's on kind of the forefront of my mind is this weekend, Ionis and Biogen presented some data uh, for their Sod1 uh, ALS trial. Unfortunately, um, it did not show efficacy when compared to placebo. Um, Obviously, we saw some change in the neurofilament. But, you know, I think we're seeing with ASOs, at least, that there's, you know, some difference in the, the pharmacodynamics, but we're not really seeing it in the efficacy. So, you know, I don't I don't know, maybe this is timing, maybe this is dosing. Some people think this is still enough to get approved. That's maybe too political to talk about right here. But this feels a little bit like deja vu for me, at least with adjuhelm or adjucenumab. So I'm curious, you know, how do you guys think about the space in terms of like RNAi, ASOs? And obviously, you know, you did a great job about talking a little bit about, you know, what, what RNA editing specifically would be used for. But do you kind of see these as all sort of serving a lot of the same indications, or do you see these as kind of differing? And is one of the main differentiations going to be safety?
0: Yeah. So just on the safety side, I mean, I think it's always hard to kind of think about that because obviously it's a long road and there's many things you can't anticipate. I think that when you're developing these medicines, things may come about during production of the vector or, I mean, I there's just a paper from... Davidson's lab, that they saw toxicity with an microRNA AAV, which I saw that and I was like, well, I would have assumed this because RNAi has been shown to have, in a lot of cases, off targets. But they actually found out it was the vector itself being actually the ITRs were causing some transcription of something that was toxic to neurons. Right. A little bit inside baseball, but I think the take home is you. It's very hard to predict when you're making these medicines where things might go wrong. But on the safety standpoint, I like the aspect of CRISPR-based tools, especially Cas7 eleven, because they're completely orthogonal to the biology of the body. When you take something like RNAI and you go through and actually dose a patient with that, you're co-opting natural machinery, which can take factors out from things like microRNA processing. And Mark Kay has shown in, for a lot of different my, uh, RNAi therapeutics that they actually cause liver toxicity through some of these different modalities. So I think that's one thing that I, I like about being orthogonal. The flip side of that is that you, sometimes you have to express a foreign protein, which can also potentially cause an immune effect. So everything has a trade-off. What I do like about cas seven eleven and Cas13 and these RNA-targeting CRISPR systems is that we can engineer them which we can't with RNAi. We can actually use protein engineering technologies to put them into different places in the cell, whether it's the nucleus or the cytoplasm, be able to control them, to be able to actually make them triggerable by things like small molecules. And that allows us an extra layer of safety, of tunability that you can't necessarily get with something like ASO or RNAi. I also like the permanence. With mm-hmm. ASO, you're not going to be able to Actually, deliver with an AV and have that stick around for a long time. And we can actually continue to express this. And it's an enzyme, it'll cut multiple times. ASOs, they, you know, they'll they bind and they can recruit things like RNAs H, but they ne- probably don't have that same turnover. So I think there's a lot of different ways that they can be used. But I think it's very neat that they can overlap in certain problem sets. Of course, with these CRISPR targeting, these RNA targeting CRISPR systems, we can also put things on them to actually modify the bases of RNA to actually change the epitranscriptomics of RNA, which is additional marks on the RNA. So it gives you a lot more optionality there, where we can actually start to tune the biology much more, actually, I would say, precisely. Uh, So I think that is one of the other large advantages of these CRISPR systems versus things like ASOs and RNAi.
2: Omar, I'm throwing it to you if you want to add anything. I think yeah.
3: what you know, Jonathan touched on the most important points. I mean, I yeah. think you know the preciseness of of these systems and them being exogenous makes it much easier to to build upon them. Right? A lot of times, you may want to actually mm. use these systems to recruit new enzymes, like a base editor, which is going to be tough to do with like RNAi or just you know antisense oligos. And I think you know Jonathan touched on the points of specificity and toxicity as well. So I think you know that obviously highlights some of the advantages of the CRISPR-based mm-hmm. approaches.
2: That's actually an interesting point. Like these increased sort of functionality like base editing or prime editing, you know, those can't really be applied obviously to ASOs or to other, you know, forms, but to RNA editing they can. So, you know, the differences will only get that much more grave as as we kind of continue to build out the RNA editing sphere, which is which is pretty exciting. How do you think people are going to kind of perceive the safety when you compare this relative to like small molecules?
3: Um, I think that's, you know, a great question. We actually, you know, as you know, with our drug development hats on, uh, talk about this a lot. And, you know, with, you know, when you think about like working with FDA and the types of data you need to submit. I mean, you know, obviously with small molecules, you don't go nearly as far with the lengths that you have to go to for like gene editing technologies, where you have to look, you know, as deep as possible and find every possible off target and, you know, characterize all the guide RNAs you're using and, and so on. And, you know, look at like, you know, effects of like RNA expression and, and, you know, so I think, you know, with, with these, you know, systems we are actually doing much better characterization than you might get with a small molecule. And so I think, as with anything, you can have, uh, you know, designs that are, you know, really not specific. And you can also engineer designs that are really, really good and specific. And so, you know, I think because we're characterizing things, these things, and we're looking at it, and we're screening all sorts of modifications that can make these things as specific as possible. They're getting really good now. And, you know, I know there's, there's concerns about off targets in both the DNA and the RNA space, but it's, it's surprising how well a lot of the companies have been able to come in the past like seven to eight years and getting these systems to be exquisitely specific. And because we actually characterize the specificity, we know what we're getting out of the systems. And I think that goes way beyond what you get um, in the small molecule world.
2: Well, that's awesome because that was an answer I just was not really anticipating because I think like public perception would be, you know, hey, it's a small molecule. It's been around for forever. You know, the safety profile is there. But it's super interesting to hear that. You know, based on the testing that you're doing, it actually may be that that this is going to have even better safety. Yeah,
3: well, you know, (laughs) sorry, to to clarify, to to make sure I'm not saying that approved drugs are not safe. You know, obviously they they go (laughs)
2: through
3: trials and, and are shown to be safe. I guess I'm more talking at the molecular specificity even though the small molecule is safe at a human level perspective, you know these small molecules are probably modulating a lot of you know different things in the cell. They may not be wrecking yeah. havoc, but they're still you know they're still technically off targets. And I think that's really interesting. And I you know I, I can't remember. I think there was a paper that actually looked at a lot of approved small molecules and how we don't they actually hit targets that we never intended <laughs> them to hit. Um, so that's that's the point I'm I'm trying to make more. And I think you know obviously the first you know phase one results have come out for a lot of the current Approaches, you know, I think it's still, you know, touch and go. You know, there was data from Allergen, I think, last week that showed, you know, there, you know, there could be really, really rare events that might have an effect, and I think time will tell whether this is an issue for the CRISPR-based um, cell therapies as well. But I think, you know, I can say at least, you know, the companies are doing the work, and there's so many cool engineered specificity versions of these tools, as well as ways to read out specificity have been developed, so.
2: Jonathan, anything to add on that one? No, I think that's pretty
0: good.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Don't mess with perfection, I got you. Okay, so uh, I think, you know, I'm curious. So I've heard Emmanuel Charpentier say, that or I might have read this. I'm reading "Editing Humanity" as you guys know, so um, it might have been in that book that I saw this. But uh, she talked about how delivery is a bigger bottleneck than the CRISPR mechanism itself. So it's funny we talk about safety, but you know maybe it's not safety. Maybe it's just actually the delivery is really challenging. So you know what's kind of we've we've touched on delivery throughout kind of the conversation. But do you guys want to add anything in terms of of delivery? Obviously, the FDA to meet uh, met already to discuss. You know toxicity concerns with AVs so you know how are you guys thinking about delivery and you know do you think delivery will be you know easier or harder different for RNA editing versus DNA editing
0: yeah I mean it, it, it's different you know you need to pick the right tool for the right job but overall yes I mean delivery is key and I wouldn't say it's like more important than the CRISPR enzyme or not there are two parts that you both need you need the scissors to or you know, the way to cut or edit the molecule you want and you need to get it to the place you want. So I think that delivery, obviously, there have been immense inroads into now non-viral methods. You know, the Moderna LNP, well, the LNP that's in the Moderna vaccine, I should say, and these all the abundance of these different ways to get things into cells have really, I think, catalyzed a lot of ongoing work that was already really fantastic. And Intellias LNP data from their Novartis-licensed LNP, was really inspiring. So the idea that we can now use a lot of non-viral approaches, I think has really upended a, a lot of the work. Um, so people think it's not just viruses, it's not just AAV. Um, I remember in 2014, 2015, when we were in Fung's lab and we were working on this smaller version of Cas9 from a bacteria called Staphylococcus aureus that could be packaged in AAV, we thought that this would be like the large enabling thing that you could now put this into an AAV, but as you can see, there's many other ways to do delivery. Now, I think delivery still has a lot of challenges. It's very hard to get to places that aren't the liver still. And I think that there's a lot of fantastic work being done and we'll see a lot of creative approaches that mine things like natural biology to either find new viruses or to adorn non-viral nanoparticles with things that look like natural ways to put things into the body. That'll help with this problem. I think also specificity of delivery is a big question. So it it couples it with toxicity. So maybe you can get to certain cells, you know, you get out out of the liver, but there are also other cells you're getting to that you don't necessarily want to get to. I think that can be uh, sometimes a question, especially if you're delivering something that could be very potentially changing of a cell state like with RNA targeting and i think that there's a lot of interesting work that we're thinking about in our lab about how do you control a payload so even if you get into the wrong cell type via your delivery method then you can do logic and understand well this isn't the cell with the expression profile that we want that's not expressed here so i'd say there's still a lot of challenges when we think about rna delivery we mentioned before short term versus long term so if you want to do short term we can use an lnp and have it around for much less if you want to have long-term, we can use one of these viral vectors like an AAV and have it more persistent. So to go back to, you know, you want the right tool for the right job, and it really depends on your indication. But it's really inspiring to see that we have this ex- ever-expanding menu of ways to get into cells in the body that I think will probably just continue to grow and grow.
2: So, you know, as you're talking, it, it starts to, to, you know, get me thinking just about how we detect off-target edits and as you mentioned we need the right tools. So I know you, when you use the word tools you were talking more about delivery tools, but it started to get me to think about checking through and having the right tools for off-target edit detection. And so I'd be curious to know your thoughts. I mean, ARC has done quite a bit of, of work and uh, you know, a shout out to Simon Barnett who's my co-analyst who has done a lot of work on this, but on the difference between sort of short read and long read sequencing. And just curious if you guys had any thoughts, you know, about what are sort of the right tools to get the right information of if there are any off-target edits.
3: Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. I mean, you know, we, as and I'm sure, you know, most people probably use a combination of all the technologies out there. So not to get into into the jargon, but, you know, the the short read technologies like, you know, Illumina allow for really, you know, precise, either like sort of semi-high coverage, you know, panning of the genome um, for, you know, small edits, um, as well as targeted off-target sequencing. Um, The bigger issue, I think, which maybe goes underappreciated as looking for large off targets, like things that cause chromosomal recombinations or large deletions, which obviously typical short read sequencing like Illumina can catch. That's actually probably what affected the allergene trial from last week that I was referencing, where you got some clone that grew up probably because of a large deletion or rearrangement. So I think, you know, that's what you're mentioning, where you have to go into either like nanopore sequencing or God forbid, you know, pack biosequencing, which is even <laughs> can do really long reads but takes a long time. And so I think anyone would have to have like a whole pipeline, basically, to look at these things and, and analyze them. And what's actually really cool, which um, I just thought of, uh, you know, Keith Jung, who spent a lot of time, he's he's a professor at MGH, founder of a lot of gene editing companies in the area, you know, actually started a company to literally look at off targets for people I'm trying to remember the name. I think it's like DX. Do you remember, Jonathan? I, I think, yeah, I think it's DX. Yeah. yeah. Basically, it's like a pay... For uh, I don't know what to call it, so, uh, pay for service model or whatever, but like companies can literally pay them to to get like an off-target analysis done for their like uh, pro, you know CRISPR drug or whatever. So, so you know that's you know this is obviously still an early time for the field and these things are being built.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting time. And I think there's so much unknown. So you guys are used to that in terms of the lab of, you know, working through these unknowns. But I think, you know, to the investor community, it's it's interesting investing in biotech and having the unknowns and, and still, you know, feeling very passionate about the companies and about the science. So it's an exciting time for sure. You know, I think like, you know, we've touched on this as well, but with the, with the pandemic and how quickly we were able to make vaccines, you know, I think that this is just going to be true for RNA therapeutics, right? So isn't the iteration time for like an RNA therapeutic development, won't that be much shorter than for a small molecule, let's say? Yeah, I
0: mean, I think that it's obviously case dependent because, you
2: know, once you have
0: the platform, you have to start to worry about the biology. So if you're delivering an RNA therapeutic with an LNP that might not be toxic itself, that approach could potentially have no, you know, off targets or toxicity, but the actual mRNA you choose for your disease, depending on what it is, that could have a lot of considerations. So I think that we'll see some things that move very rapidly, but I'm sure that there will will be a lot of unexpected biology. and. Even if you can knock the gene down or edit the gene or do whatever, sometimes the biology doesn't work on the efficacy side. And we just can't anticipate that.
2: So I think, you know, our we have a five to 10 year time horizon, so we think of things as you know, we don't need sort of the immediate result, but we we believe in the companies and, and, and sort of the management teams. And we sort of, you know, like to, to have the vision and the the forethought to think sort of futuristically as you guys do, because you're developing these therapeutics. So, you know, what's kind of coming down the pipe. So I guess I'd be curious, you know, do you guys have any sort of thought about like what is going to be in five to 10 years? Like, are we going to be still talking about Cast9IP? are we going to be talking about RNA editing a lot more? Are we going to be talking a lot more about prime editing? You know, what what do you kind of think is going to be the main conversation in five to 10 years? Honestly,
3: you know, given how fast the field moves, it'll probably be a technology that's not even invented yet or thought of. <laughs> but, you know, remind us like, you know, the original CRISPR nucleases are just, you know, coming on their maybe eight year, nine year anniversary being published. And, you know, God knows where we'll be in 10 years. But, you know, I think in terms of where we're going, I mean, one, you know, maybe hot take I'll put out there is we're getting so much focused on, you know, more and more precise, you know, editing and you know, it's funny because when you take a step back and look at some diseases like cystic fibrosis, for example, which has 1800 mutations, it's like, how are you going to make, you know, 1800 different prime drugs or 1800 different, you know, Cas9 edited drugs? It's a lot of work for one company or even, you know, multiple companies to do. And so, you know, it's when we think about like what is needed for some diseases, and a lot of diseases actually have dozens or hundreds of mutations, and there isn't like, you know, one mutation that's dominating, right? So, if you only develop the most dominant one, you're still probably leaving, you're leaving a lot of patients at the table. And so, you know, one thing I think that's still left for the field is obviously programmable gene integration, which, you know, instead of saying you're going to target like a mutation, you go broader and say, I'm just going to replace an entire gene. And, you know, there you can actually hit all the mutations at once and you can make a single drug that affects, you know, all the patients. And so, I think, you know, Probably we'll be talking about that sooner than ten years, <laughs> but you know just you know a hot take for you know the balancing of like making the most precise you know editing technology versus you know things that can maybe do larger types of things that can treat more people and are more practical to actually develop drugs for I think is one thing we'll see the field turn towards you know in ten years I mean I think you know we'll probably see more work towards I think in vivo cell engineering so moving away from just genetic engineering tools you know I, I think, you know, obviously... There was this huge, you know, sort of Cambrian, you know, evolution almost of gene editing tools, right? We sequenced the first human genome, we sequenced many human genomes. We needed tools to start, you know, manipulating the insights from those things. We built a genetic engineering toolbox, and I think for the next decade, it's like we're now sequencing cells, right? Single cell RNA sequencing, some single cell epigenome sequencing, and now we really need tools to manipulate cells. And I think, you know, probably the next decade to two will be like kind of in vivo cell engineering and reprogramming. Um, none of this ex vivo crap where you have to engineer cells and complex manufacturing facilities and, you know, allergenic stuff, like go directly into the body and make tools that can reprogram a cell or, you know, reprogram a T cell directly or, you know, transdifferentiate a cell. Um, and I think that's hopefully <laughs> where I'm hoping we'll be at in 10 years, but we'll see.
2: So, less yeah. electroporation. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I think,
0: yeah, that's really that kind of last comment about. So, you, when you build these modalities, right, Let's look before CRISPR at something like antibodies and like using them for oncology. That's based on both the science of antibodies, but also on the science of what are the signaling pathways in the development of cancer. So a tool often has its own biology, but there's the biology of the target. And as Omar said, the human genome was the biology that now basically 20 years ago has now been unlocked that we can target using CRISPR and using other genome editing tools. So really the question is, what's the biology today that we'll be able to unlock in the next 10 years? And uh, yeah, you look at these huge efforts for understanding disease through the lens of cellular identity, cell states, cell types, what goes wrong and what changes during disease, and how do we modify between those cell states and types to cure a disease? potentially even before there's any sort of actual burden on the on the patient, developing the tools that will connect to that biology is going to be the next wave of medicines. Because now we're just not targeting at the, the gene level, it's at the cell level. And you, you know, for as long as the genome and DNA has been a concept in biology, the cell is even much more ancient, hundreds of years more. So if we can find a way to programmatically control cells, like we're starting to with you know, RNA or DNA, that will be the area that can unlock the next wave of therapies, and I think that's what we're most excited about, and how different tools
2: can help us toward that vision. I'm waiting for my personalized gene editing therapy, so <laughs> I'll, I'll have to wait a little longer, maybe. But I think that'd be really, really interesting, but maybe not so realistic in the next five to 10 years. But I I think something that would be fun to do as we close, because I I know you guys have, you know, stuff to run into and, and have to get back to it. But maybe some advice to young scientists. I saw this also probably I read in Editing Humanity, but I read that Emmanuel Charpentier said she got her worst grade in microbiology in school. And obviously, we know that's what she specialized in. So, you know, maybe I'll start. And my advice would be that don't put any sort of guardrails on what your potential is and what you can maybe achieve and just dream the impossible. I'm sure when you guys were kids, you weren't like, I'm going to change the world and, and, you know, find new enzymes and create new therapeutics and new diagnostic tools. And you are. So my advice would be to, you know, try to think big um, and achieve all the things that are possible. So just curious what what your advice would be.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think (laughs) those are great points. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that can always be tough is trying to sort of break the mold. I remember when Jonathan and I were trying to stick together after grad school, a lot of people laughed at us and said, it's impossible in academia. You have to work alone and suffer through that pain. And so I remember we actually were talking to Eric Lander of all people about, you know, the struggle of doing this. And I remember, you know, he said, um, you know, like basically nonsense, you know, you know, sort of bend the metal frameworks of academia and, you know, just, you know, keep trying. Don't let people put you in a box essentially. And he was like, that's what we did with the Broad. Like it was unheard of, you know, to build an institute like this and like be independent from the university and, you know, basically build all these independent, you know, units. I mean, what the broad, you know, not to go on off a tangent, right? But the Broad, you know, basically built Everything from scratch, and um, he basically bent, you know, the the framework of academia to do it. And I think that advice has always stuck with me because, you know, I think doing what Jonathan and I is doing, it's it's not as common, right? There there are instances of other people, like at Berkeley, you know, even at HMS, that have done you know joint labs. But I think you know that process of of you know being able to make that happen has been great. And so that would be my advice: is don't let people put you in a box, and you know, try hard to to bend, I guess, the universe to your will to, to make. Make what you want happen. So, another thing I would I would, you know, I would probably also add is, you know, if you're going to go through the path of science, like learn to enjoy the pain, <laughs> that part is definitely true. I think uh, you know, 99% of it is like looking at negative data and trying to iterate on that and you definitely have to keep a strong mental sort of state to <laughs> if you really want to be able to keep going through all that. So, that would be my second advice is just, you know, enjoy the the journey
0: and the process. Yeah. Don't be afraid to fail. I think it's definitely an important one. I mean, this is, I think Omar touches this a bit, but I want to say explicitly, science is not a like solo endeavor. It doesn't have to be, at least, and it shouldn't be. But it's science is a team effort and it's a community effort. So if you are inspired by something and you're interested in it, Reach out to people. I think the one thing I didn't do when I was enough when I was young is like really find people who are super excited about science and work with them. And I think, you know, the opportunity to do that with someone like Omar, you know, you can see that works really well. The best scientists collaborate furiously and they, you know, build communities around them where you can pass ideas between each other, you can refine them, you can shoot things down, or you can say, I'm stuck here, someone help me out. And you know, when you're maybe a younger scientist, you think that, oh, wow, well, you know, I'm going to have to be alone counting worms under my microscope, or I'm going to have to compete with people in a science fair or something. But that's not really how it is. Science is about building relationships with, you know, others people who love this research. And it's about finding mentors who can show you how to do something. I mean, obviously, uh, Omar and I are incredibly indebted to Fung for you know, teaching us all, all everything that he knows about how to do all of this genome editing and enzyme discovery. And then at the other end of that, it's about teaching mentees how this works and passing it down to the next generation. So if you love science and you want to get into science, one of the easiest ways to do that is find other people who have that infectious enthusiasm and just start talking to them, start collaborating with them. Just pick their brains and have, let them pick yours. So I think that's always a nice thing to do. And they're now, you know, thanks to the internet and all these communities, it's really easy. It's easier now than ever to do. But don't hesitate to reach out to other people and say, I don't know. And they'll, they can help teach you.
2: I love that because I also think, I mean, everyone who's read the CRISPR story here, either, you know, in the Walter Isaacson book or in Editing Humanity or others, you know, you you look at how many people were working on this kind of either subsequently or, you know, if they would have collaborated, maybe we could have had more. Maybe if the journals would have, you know, allowed their papers earlier, this could have happened earlier. So there's so many steps that we can take to to kind of make things better. But I think collaboration is a big one. We know that, you know, having larger data sets helps make, you know, stronger conclusions. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of room for collaboration. And I'll certainly say that you know, even for me, I reached out to you guys, I read your paper on cast seven and 11. And I was like, wow, these guys are geniuses. I want to understand more about army editing. And, you know, both of you were so gracious and willing to explain the science. And so I think that definitely reaching out. There's a community of people who want to help and who want to make science accessible and interesting. So, you know, thank you guys for that and and for creating that, but, but also completely agree that it's, you know, a community of amazing people who really do and want to collaborate. So I think that's awesome. And I think maybe I'll just say, you know, is there anything that you guys want to touch upon um, as we close that maybe I didn't ask about, Anything you guys want to maybe spend a a minute or two talking about?
3: Yeah. I just want to say, like, I'm constantly amazed by how sort of fast, our progress to engineer cells and biology is accelerating. I think, you know, I'm not even, you know, as old as, of course, many of the other experts you've talked to that are in the field, right? But like, I feel like even in my time, probably a decade now in this space, I've, I, you know, have seen such a flurry of new things and new technologies come out and new approaches to like, you know, basically manipulate biology for the better. And I think, you know, it'll be exciting to see what happens, but, you know, there's, You know, being in Kendall, it's just you see so much, you know, cool papers coming out every day, new companies coming out. The Bay Area, I'm sure, you know, is very similar. Like our office literally looks into Moderna and, you know, being able to see, you know, this past year, how fast we can uh, basically come out with vaccines and updates for vaccines is, you know, really exciting. And I think, you know at least in our own domain, of of being able to basically mine, right, molecular biology, mine, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of microbes for new proteins and studying those proteins and being able to find totally new biochemical activities that evolved probably over, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of years that can then become useful for, uh, you know, health and society is is also just... uh, amazes me every day. So, you know, I think we're in the middle of like something special, at least this is, you know, definitely the century of biology. And it's nice to sometimes just reflect on that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I couldn't have predicted like five years ago that this is what things would be like in terms of just, you know, how much innovation is going on. And so I think that honestly, my predictions for the next five years are probably going to undershoot. So it's just kind of insane that, you know, we get the opportunity to be working in this time in this era when things are so you know catalyzed for innovation we <laughs> we were born too late to be able to you know work on fundamental physics problems like in you know quantum chemistry or something but now we can be able to develop these tools so I think that it's kind of unique to have that opportunity and we're just you know we're lucky but I think that we have to make the most of that and keep trying to you know develop, these medicines these new technologies that can hopefully help people out and that's really what it's all about
2: definitely and I think you are definitely making the most of it already you know you know with the cast 7-11 and and all the other discoveries that that have come out and as you mentioned you guys are just getting started so many many more things to come and keep not letting people put you in a box and I'm sure we'll see so so much more from you guys it's really exciting so I'll be on the sidelines cheering
0: (laughs) (laughs)